you're the type of person who likes to get the biggest bang for their buck, always looking for a deal, then you can really appreciate the efforts of a man named David Phillips. Phillips was a civil engineer living in California when he discovered what was really the deal of a lifetime. In the summer of 1999, the food uh, brand Healthy Choice was running a promotion in which customers could earn 500 air miles for every 10 UPC barcodes from Healthy Choice products that they sent in. Now, Healthy Choice had two significant loopholes that they had failed to close. Number one, they didn't limit the promotion to only their most expensive items. It was any item that they sold. Two, they did not put a cap on how many air miles you could earn. And so seeing the advantage, David Phillips swooped in, and he found out that the, the cheapest item he could find by Healthy Choice was 25-cent pudding cups. And for each of those, he could send in a code and earn air miles. He immediately went around to every mark, uh, supermarket and grocery store he could find and filled his cart with pudding cups. And from store to store he would go. In fact, he eventually earned the nickname The Pudding Guy by all the stores in the valley. He purchased over 12,000 pudding cups and sent in the UPC barcodes, earning him over 1.2 million air miles. Just to put that in perspective, with the 1.2 million air miles, he could fly around the circumference of the earth 50 times just by miles earned from pudding cups. To make things better, for all the miles that he flew, he would earn more air miles. And, he, just to rest your, your mind as well, he did not eat all 12,000 pudding cups. He ended up donating them to the Salvation Army and got a nice $800 tax write-off. <laughs> this guy is like the ultimate couponer. I mean, talk about, uh, talk about a good investment. Uh, it turns out the pudding guy was a pretty good investor. Now, good investing is not just for something for a, for a couponer like David Phillips or for Wall Street executives. We ought to be wise investors in all that we have, whether it's our time, our resources, or our money. The question is, what makes a wise investment? What makes a good investment? Well, if you ask most financial experts, they will tell you it has to do with the return on investment. If you're making a good investment, you're, you're getting a good return. You're not losing money, you're actually making money. Uh, is your capital growing or is it shrinking? These are questions people will ask. So a great investment offers great returns. But, of course, we can't evaluate every investment in terms of dollar amount, can we? Because there are some things which are very good investments, even though they may not provide big financial returns. For instance, we can invest our, our time and money into blessing other people, which doesn't have a financial return, but it has a return of its own. Let me suggest this morning a good investment that has many returns. It's this. Investing in the gospel is the wisest investment you can make. Investing in the gospel is the wisest investment you can make. Because nothing is more important, nothing is more rewarding than being engaged with introducing others to Jesus, investing in the gospel. The Philippian church had been doing just that. They had invested themselves in the progress and furtherance of the gospel in their support of the Apostle Paul. This book of Philippians is something of a thank you letter from Paul to the Philippian church for their continued support over the years. 
So if your Bible's open to Philippians chapter 4, we're going to conclude this book this morning and wrap up our study of striving together for the gospel. And I hope you've enjoyed our walkthrough of Philippians together. It's a book I come back to relatively often, and I think you should too. It's really a wonderful book. And as the book closes, there's a lot of personal information. This is quite normal for a New Testament letter. Usually it will wrap up with all kinds of uh, personal notes and salutations and greetings and those types of things. And so it always makes it an interesting way to wrap it up. Because after all, we could look at the end of Philippians and say, well, this doesn't really have much to do with me. This is just Paul sending greetings to the saints in Philippi and you know, kind of summary conclusion statements. Yet I think there's something we can learn about investing in the gospel here. So again, the Philippian church had financially supported Paul during his ministry and travels. And in so doing, they had invested in the gospel itself. So as we study verses 15 through the end of the chapter, I want to point out four returns that you can expect when you invest in the gospel. Let's start in verse 15. I want to read just 15 and 16 to get us started. The Bible says, Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving but you only. For even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my necessities. So four returns that we can expect when we invest in the gospel. Number one is partnerships in ministry. Partnerships in ministry. When we invest in the gospel, when we link arms with others who are already engaged in making the gospel known, we build new and deeper relationships with others. For instance, when a church supports a missionary who's planting churches and evangelizing on the other side of the planet, they now have a relationship with those missionaries. They're, you know, If we support someone like that, we're, we're blessed to know them. We receive letters from them describing their work. We gain partner in the worldwide task of making disciples. So we develop partnerships in ministry. That was the case with the Philippian church. They had a partner in the Apostle Paul. Now Paul relates some of the personal history that he and the Philippians shared together here in verse 15. You notice it starts, Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. You notice that he begins with a statement, you know, you Philippians know. This was all common history. They, they understood this, but nevertheless, Paul is thanking them, and he never really quite comes out and says, thanks for the gift, but we notice that he truly is appreciative for their support. I think one of the reasons, we may get into this later as well, but one of the reasons I think Paul avoids just saying thanks for the gift is because for him it was never all about the money. The money was part of it, but it's not the primary element. You see, Paul recalls their fa past faithfulness here that the Philippian church had been givers rather than just takers of Paul's ministry. Yes, they had received from Paul many helpful things, but they were givers as well. So as you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, that phrase itself, in the beginning of the gospel, might cause you to pause for a second. What does that mean? Well, it probably means when the gospel began in Philippi. In other words, from the very beginning, from the founding of this church, you were supporters of me. You were partners with me in the ministry I was doing. 
Paul had remained in contact with this church, connected to them. And even when he left Macedonia, and he says that in the verse, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me. You know, even when he left, and Philippi was a prominent city in the province of Macedonia. And there were other cities too, like Thessalonica and Berea, which Paul also visited. But even after he left their region, it wasn't out of sight, out of mind for the Philippians. They continued to have their mind on Paul, reminded of him and continuing to support him. Now, when it says here in verse uh, 15, no, one, no church share with me but you only, I don't think that's meant to be a slam on the other churches. It's not like Paul's saying, you know, the rest of them were just, you know, he, he's instead trying to encourage the Philippian church by saying, listen, even when, when I was in greatest need, there was no other churches that were helping me, you helped. You continued to support me. You continued to give. So he's not trying to be down on the other churches, but instead encourage this one. What did they do, though? He says in the verse, they shared with me concerning giving and receiving. They shared with me. Other versions might say partnered with me or even communicated with me. What's used here is the Greek word koinonia. We've talked about it many times before. Usually koinonia is translated fellowship. But it also has sort of a financial edge to it. It can also talk about giving or sharing. Again, the idea of koinonia is having something in common, a common goal, a common life, a common desire, a common mission. But it can also refer to financial involvement, like sharing, partnering financially. Now, Paul has used this word in Philippians a number of times. In fact, we can put those on the screen. In verse, chapter 1, verse 5, he talks about their partnership in the gospel, koinonia. In 1-7, he talks about partakers with me in the spirit, participation in the spirit, fellowship in his suffering, sharing in trouble, sharing with me here in 15. The point is, there's a lot of different ways to translate this word. But the, the root idea is not just giving, but sharing, partnering with me. You see, that's, I think, what the Philippians gained. That was the return on investment. When they supported Paul, they got not only uh, his prayer letters back in the mail, they also received a partner in ministry. A dear friend, a beloved servant of God who was connected to them through their continued ongoing support. It had been about 10 years since Paul had been in Philippi. And over these 10 years, the Philippian church had, whenever they could, supported him and sent gifts. In fact, listen to this. This is from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul talking here about giving to this church. He mentions... Chapter 11, verses 8 and 9. Again, Paul is, is somewhat sarcastic here in writing to the sec, in 2 Corinthians. And he writes, I robbed other churches, taking wages from them in order to minister to you. Then he says, verse 9, listen. When I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything, I kept myself from being burdensome to you, and so I will keep myself. Notice what he says. When I was in Corinth, I didn't ask for money from anybody. The people who supported me were from Macedonia, Philippi primarily. They had shared with him repeatedly, meeting his needs when he was in need. It's easy to see, by the way, why the book of Philippians is such a positive, warm, encouraging letter. Paul had this wonderful relationship 
which he refers to over and over again, including here, as a partnership in the gospel. Now, this is true, I think, for anyone who invests in the gospel. If that's where you put your resources, if that's where you put your time, you will find partners in ministry. It's an exciting thing, actually. Uh, For instance, uh, we talk about investing our life or money for gospel purposes. One of these benefits is this partnerships in ministry, these vibrant relationships we share with others who are also about that same mission. Our church has supported Henry and Linda Vosberg for quite some time. And they've been a blessing to our church in many ways, and we have, I think, been a blessing to them. We support them financially and prayerfully. And because of that, we have a relationship with the Vosbergs that is deep and, and vibrant. They are partners in ministry with us. They're not just people who are, whose faces are up on a board somewhere and we say, hmm, I wonder who those people are. They're people that we know that we care about because we share with them in ministry. Let me give you another example. A few months ago, a new church called Pillar Fellowship opened in Jeffersonville, Indiana. And a few of our members here went down for the inaugural service of that church. What you might not know is a few years before, our Thursday morning Bible study collected uh, a significant contribution and gave it to the starting of that church. Here's the thing. We have a relationship with that ministry now because we've invested in it. And we have a relationship with them. And and it's a blessing to be able to share ministry, to have partners like that because we're investing in the gospel, building those types of relationships. But let let me take it one step further, even closer to home. When you invest in your local church, what do you get? again, I'm not saying that, you know, we give to get. In fact, I'll probably have to say that several times throughout here. We don't give to get, but what's one return on investment? Well, if you're invested both individually and financially and otherwise in your local church, that's oftentimes where the deepest relationships are formed. I think back on my own life, the, the deepest friendships and relationships I've had have been people that we have shared ministry together in the local church. So invest yourself in the gospel, and you will find friends and relationships and partnerships in ministry. I'm sure we could come up with some more examples if we tried, but when you invest in the gospel, we develop partnerships in ministry. Let me also go to the second benefit. The second return on investment, if you will, is eternal benefits. Eternal benefits. See, investing in the gospel also produces reward in heaven. Again, I, I have to repeat myself. I'm not saying give to get. You know, if you send your seed money in, you're going to get such and such back. What I am saying is this. An investment in the gospel is an investment in treasures in heaven. Look at what happens here in verse, let's, let's pick up in verse 16. He says, even in Thessalonica, you did send aid once and again for my necessities. So the Philippian church was actively sending need and, and meeting Paul's need whenever he had one. Then verse 17, he says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. 
Uh, these verses to me are interesting because they give us an insight into Paul's thoughts about their gift. And also their return on investment, and the two kind of overlap. The reason that Paul is excited about their financial support and the reason he's so thankful for them is not the money. Paul is not excited because, oh, well, thank you for meeting this particular need or thank you for the, the money. What really gets him excited about is the evidence of their spiritual maturity that is shown through their partnership, the evidence that they're growing. You know, Paul is not just begging them for more, saying, hey, listen, I've got needs. Keep sending the money. In fact, if you go back to verse 11, he said, in regard to need, I've learned whatever state I am to be content. I don't have a lot of needs, he basically says. And then he repeats himself, well, sort of repeats himself here. He says, not that I seek a gift. In other words, I'm not trying to get more out of you. I'm not trying to tell you to send more money. Instead, he says, what really gets me excited is the fact, verse 17, I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. In other words, I'm so happy you give, not because I receive something, but because you receive something. Fruit to your account. You see, Paul is not seeking money for himself. And, and again, this was so common because back in New Testament times, there were people called the sophists, philosophers, who would travel around, and part of their, their mode of operation was they would roll into a town, they would have lectures on certain topics that they had practiced, you know, all their rhetorical skills, and then they would charge people. Basically, they would come in, and you would listen to them and pay a fee. Uh, not that unlike, you know, self-help gurus and motivational speakers today. Come in and give you speeches and get you riled up and, you know, excited about things and and, but essentially, what were they after? Well, a lot of them were after a paycheck. This was how they made money. They would go from town to town doing this. And so Paul deliberately, in a lot of his letters, distances himself from this kind of attitude. I'm not just rolling around trying to fleece the next town of a few more dollars and then moving on. No, he cared not about the money, but about them, about their fruitfulness. And he speaks of it in a couple of different ways. He talks about it in, in, in terms of increasing fruitfulness. This is one of the eternal benefits they have, is increasing fruitfulness. Notice verse 17. I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Now, first of all, he uses the language of financial gain. He mentions account. Like we might think of a bank account or uh, kind of that fiscal uh, language here. In fact, Matthew Harmon, a commentator, recognizes that the financial imagery continues, in verse 17, with an agricultural twist. And you notice the agricultural twist is fruitfulness. Now, the Bible often talks about fruit or fruitfulness, talking about spiritual growth or the growth of the gospel. For instance, the Bible talks about the fruit of the Spirit, referring to those qualities of Christian virtue which are developed by the control of the Spirit in our lives. Likewise, earlier in this letter, Paul said that to live on in the flesh would mean fruit for my labor. There he's talking about lost souls won to Christ. That if he's able to continue his ministry, he can keep furthering the gospel. That is fruitfulness. Well, which, which is meant here when he says that fruit will abound to your account? Is he talking about 
gospel multiplication, or is he talking about spiritual growth? Well, I don't know that there necessarily needs to be a strong line driven between the two, but I think it's probably gospel multiplication. Because in them sending and supporting him, he's able to continue sharing the gospel with more and more and more people. And so they're getting to be partakers of that, and and it's to their benefit. And then he says their account abounds. It's overflowing. Their account is filled up. So investing in the gospel is a long-term investment that has a lot of returns. Again, I quote Matthew Harmon, who writes, The imagery seems to be the Philippians seeing their heavenly accounts overflowing as a result of the sacrificial giving to the advancement of the gospel. So not only do they have increasing fruitfulness, they also have God's approval. You see this in verse 18. He talks about them meeting his needs and abounding. In other words, I don't have anything that I need. I've learned to be content. But then he describes their gift as a sweet-smelling aroma and an acceptable sacrifice. He's using the language of the Old Testament here, talking about the, the sacrifices. And he describes them as, first of all, a fragrant offering. A fragrant offering. Now, in the Old Testament, there was what was called the altar of incense. When you walked into the temple, there would be this altar. It wasn't the altar where they slaughtered the bulls and the lambs. It was a much smaller altar, and they would burn incense on it. And it would fill the temple space with this sweet-smelling aroma. It reminds me of whenever I come home sometimes, Ashley will burn a candle occasionally. And usually I can tell as soon as I open the door because I walk in and it smells nice. And so, you know, you get a big whiff of it. Oh, that's, that's, that's nice. It's kind of reminded me a little bit of a Febreze commercial. You know, what always happens in the Febreze commercial is a person walks in the room and they smell and they go, oh, you know, it smells so terrible. And their face distorts. And then after they've sprayed the Febreze, they walk in and they go, ah, and they always smile, you know. It's a little exaggerated, I know. But that's kind of the idea. It makes you happy. It's this nice smell. Well, the offering of incense was a sweet smell to God. It made God happy. And again, it was their obedience in following his word that really was what made him happy, not just the, the, the actual action of burning incense. But it creates kind of a picture. Their offering, their offering that is their support of Paul, is to God like, a, like an offering in the temple. Not only that, he describes it as a fragrant offering and also an acceptable sacrifice. An acceptable sacrifice. Again, the background here is the Old Testament, that the Levites would offer bulls, lambs, goats, all those things on the altar. And those were an act of worship before the Lord. In fact, so was the, altar, the uh, burning of incense, too. So what Paul is saying is your giving to the advancement of the gospel is like an offering. It's like a, a worship of God that you are doing. That's one of the reasons why we have giving as part of our worship service on Sunday morning. It's because we believe that giving is an act of worship. It's it's not just something we do just to pay our fees so we can keep coming to church or something like that. It's that we are giving in worship in response to what God has done. And so it just seems appropriate that we should give of of our own means. It's an acceptable sacrifice. Now, here's an important thing to note. 
In the Old Testament, there was such a thing as an unacceptable sacrifice. You couldn't just bring any lamb or goat that you wanted to offer. It had to meet certain requirements. It had to be a certain age. It couldn't be a blemished lamb. It couldn't be crippled. There is such a thing as unacceptable worship. And I think there is something also as unacceptable giving. You know, some people give to their church, to missions, to ministry for the wrong reasons. And I believe that is unacceptable worship. For instance, if a person might give to their church out of a sense of obligation, I have to do this. They might give, um, I guess you could say grudgingly. They might give because they would feel guilty if they didn't. They give sometimes to ease their conscience simply because they don't share their faith. So I guess my recommendation this morning would be, if you're giving for a reason like that, if you're, if you're giving because um, you feel guilty, or because you want to be, look generous so you drop a check in the plate, if those are your reasons for giving, just don't. That's my recommendation. Just don't give. Because it's only when it's given from a heart that loves God and wants to serve and worship him, that's what we're interested in. Just like Paul, he wasn't interested in their money. He was interested in, in them truly worshiping the Lord with what they had. And that was a return on investment, if you want to say it that way. A benefit that they received. You know, the investment in the gospel doesn't have immediate returns. These are long-term investments. Uh, we talk about eternal rewards or eternal benefits, they're things that we probably won't even see till heaven. And I, like Paul, am excited when believers give, not because I want money, but because it means that you care about the gospel and you're willing to give of your own resources to support it. It doesn't matter how big or small the gift is either. You think of the story of the, the woman in the temple who gave her last two pennies, a pretty, a pretty tiny offering, I must say. But it was given out of a heart that loved God and wanted to give. It was a great gift. The Bible says, He who gives a cup of cold water in my name will in no way lose his reward. And so it is. Those who invest in the gospel will not lose their reward. Let me give a third return on investment, though. And this one maybe is harder to define as a return, but it is God's endless supply. God's endless supply. Again, not really a return on investment per se, but a promise to those who give generously. After all, if the Philippians are giving to Paul, they might wonder, well, are we going to be able to continue doing this? Who's meeting our needs? After all, Paul says in verse 18, I am abound, I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things you sent to me. So Paul's needs are met through the Philippians. Well, who's going to meet the Philippians' needs? Look at verse 19. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory and by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So the Philippians have access to God's endless supply. He will meet their needs. In case they were wondering who's going to be looking out for us, the answer is God will. I want us to look at this verse and, and ask and kind of examine the nature of God's provision here. The nature of God's provision at the beginning of verse 19. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches. That 
is what the Philippian church could expect, that God will meet their needs. Now, here's, here's the question we have is, what does he mean by needs? Because some people might read this and, and assume, well, God's just going to give me whatever I want. Well, it doesn't say God's going to supply all your wants according to his riches. It says your needs. Again, our skeptical mind starts going into overdrive here, and we think to ourselves, well, what about believers whose needs are, needs are not met? You, know, you think about the persecuted church. What, what if there's a, a Vietnamese pastor who's starving in a squalid jail cell somewhere? You know, how is God meeting his needs? Well, I hope this statement is not callous. But in that case, and in cases like it, it may be that the thing that that, that pastor needs is the grace to endure, to suffer, and even die well for Christ. And if that's what he needs, I trust God will supply it to him. The grace to even die if necessary. Again, I hope I'm not being callous there. But the reality is, sometimes the things we think we need aren't what we really need. We assume we know what we need. And for us, it might be, well, more stuff. Well, God may not want to give us more stuff. What we really need is to learn to be content without the stuff. So God is willing to supply what we need. We just have to be willing to trust God that what he's going to give is what we need. So the nature of God's provision is that God meets our needs, not everything that we want. But also notice in verse 19 the extent of God's provision. It says, he will meet all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now, there are a variety of ways to translate the end of verse 19. It's a little challenging. A lot of it has to do with what are the words in glory they're referring to. Is it an adverb? Is it describing Christ where he is? Is it describing the riches where they are? What's, what's meant here? Well, I think, and I'll get into some of the details in a minute, but the main idea that's coming across here is God provides graciously and lavishly. God is a generous God, and he does so in accordance with his glorious riches in Christ. And I believe in glory is probably adverbial. Now I'll explain what that means here in a second, but let me give an illustration first, which will help. Now, when it says God will supply our needs, he can give either according to his riches or out of his riches. So with the illustration, imagine there was a billionaire who wanted to give you a gift, now, he could give a gift to you out of his riches or according to his riches. If he's giving out of his riches, he might give you a gift and buy you a brand new 2021 you know, Chevy Trailblazer. And it would be a generous gift. I'm sure you would appreciate it. But that would be out of his vast wealth. In fact, he probably wouldn't even notice that money was gone. It would be nothing for him. And if that's the point, then God certainly has all things at his disposal. He can provide anything we need, period, anything. But if the billionaire gives you according to his riches, that means he gives you the kind of gift a billionaire would give. So in other words, if he's going to buy you a car, he's going to buy you a Bugatti or a Ferrari, you know, a car that's in the millions, because that's the kind of gift a billionaire gives, not a Chevy Trailblazer. I mean, he could do that. By all means, he's got the money, but that's, that wouldn't be a billionaire type of gift. David Garland, a commentator, suggests this translation for the verse. I think it's helpful. God will supply all your needs on a scale worthy of God's riches. 
That's, that's what I mean by adverbial. It's on a scale worthy of God's riches. He gives to us not, not just out of his vast wealth, but he gives us in accordance with his vast wealth. He's not a stingy God. We need not fear that we will be forgotten. God will give us all that we need and much more. So when it comes to investing in the gospel, don't be afraid to give. To give of your resources, because God will supply what you need. Finally, though, the last return on investment is joy in the harvest. This is perhaps the best one of all. Best for last, you know. As, as the book of Philippians closes, it's a, almost a reminder that Philippians, since you've invested in Paul's ministry, you share in the joy of seeing people come to Christ. Look at how the letter ends. Verse 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And with those words, the letter of the Philippians closes. Fairly standard ending. You know, he, he offers greetings and blessings. Paul asks that the church greet all the saints on his behalf, and he sends greetings from those who are with him in Rome. And then, in verse 22, he hones in on a specific group. And he says, all the saints greet you. That is, everybody who is in the Lord sends their greetings. And he says, especially those who are of Caesar's household. So apparently there were some within Caesar's household who had believed the gospel because of Paul's imprisonment and ministry there in Rome. Now, let's look at the phrase, though. Because we hear the word household, and we might immediately think family members. When we talk about household today, it's always, well, generally, it's family members. So it may sound to you like, wow, Nero's kids got saved, or his you know, wife got saved, or whatever. Um, but in, the ancient, in ancient times, household was a lot more far-reaching term. You know, even if you weren't wealthy, household might include grandparents, cousins, you know, servants, anybody else who might be employed in the family business, all kind of fell under the category of household. If you were a wealthy individual, it might be quite extensive. For instance, Abraham in the Old Testament traveled around with his flocks and herds and included hundreds of people that were part of his household. Well, Caesar was about the mo most powerful man in the world, he was, and his household would have included all the, the cooks and cleaning people and staff and guards. There were probably thousands upon thousands of people who were in Caesar's household. Uh, think of it today as like the White House. In the White House, you have all kinds of aides and staff workers. You have people who uh, you know, run tours through there. They have people who clean the place and people who cook. There's secret service agents everywhere. All of those people would be part of the president's household if we think of this term that way. So it, it may not have been Caesar's direct family, but it was people close to him. It was people cooking Caesar's meals. It was people that were making his bed for him had come to believe in Jesus. There was a gospel witness right in the belly of the beast, if you will, in the Roman Empire. 
I think this is exciting. I think this is something that Paul kind of includes here in the conclusion to tell the Philippians, because you've invested in me, because you've had a part in my ministry, there are people today in Caesar's household who are going to be in heaven because of what you gave. Because you supported me, you're going to meet some of these people of, of Caesar's household, of all places, have come to trust because of what you have done. That would have been amazing news. Especially, I mean, if you're living in Philippi, you have no, I mean, there's no access to the emperor's household. I mean, there's no way you could reach one of the Praetorian Guard from Philippi. But they had supported Paul in his ministry, had, had continued to partner with him in the sharing of the gospel. And so in a small way, they took part and they could rejoice not that they had won those people to Christ, but they had had a part in it. They had shared in it. They had a little bit of joy in that harvest because they had invested in the gospel. I want to share a, a kind of a colloquial little story that uh, apparently I think was first shared by Harry Ironside, the former pastor of the Moody Church. And he shares this little, obviously fictional story, but uh, amusing story too. There was a man named John Raskus, who Ironside describes as putting $300 in the collection plate at church as it passed by, and he softly said as, it, as he dropped the money in, speaking to his money, I'll see you in heaven. And so people around him thought, man, this guy has just gone completely senile. You know, he, he doesn't even know what he's talking about. Well, a few weeks later, Mr. Raskus died. The $300 that he had put in the plate was used to pay the electric bill. Some of it was given to buy the preacher gasoline. Some went to some seminary students, and the rest went to the mission field. Well, when he awakened in glory, he walked down the streets of gold, and he ran upon a young man who said, Thank you, Brother John. I was cold and lonely on a dark night, and I saw the lights of the church. I went to get out of the darkness, and while I was there talking with someone, I met Jesus. Another person came along and said, Preacher, the preacher came to the filling station, and as I filled his tank, he, you know, this is an old story, filling the tank for him. Uh, as I filled the tank, he told me about Christ, and I gave my heart to the Lord. Next, he met a group, of, a group of people who said, thank you for supporting those students that you helped. They preached the gospel to our family, and we found Christ. Finally, he met a whole group of people who said, thank you, brother, for sending us the gospel across the seas. Finally, as he's walking through heaven, John Raskus comes upon some angels. And he turned to the angels and said, I feel sorry for you, angels. You'll never know what it's like to be saved by the blood of Christ. And then he added, and you don't know what it is to transform the possessions of earth into treasures in heaven. Uh, it's a fictional little story, but it illustrates that $300 given in the plate can have an eternal impact. And that joy of the harvest belongs to those who invest, invest in the gospel. Again, as we close the, the book of Philippians, we're left with one question kind of lingering on our minds from, from this, and that is, how do we invest in the gospel? And you're telling us that it's a good investment and we ought to do it, and here's the returns, but how? What do we do? Let me give you three words. Number one, we can invest financially. That's just one element when we give to the, the work that's going on. That's part of how we invest. That's what the Philippians did. They sent literal 
financial contributions to Paul. And because of that, he was able to minister in Corinth. And he was able to do it without being a burden. You see, when we give financially to our local church, the ministries, we're taking part in the, the work of gospel ministry that's taking place. So we can invest financially. Secondly, we can invest prayerfully. Don't underestimate this. Sometimes it can feel a little easier almost to write a check and drop it in a plate and not think about it, but to prayerfully pray for those in our church. You know, pray for our church as we do the work of ministry. Pray for our missionaries and those who are traveling abroad to carry that gospel forward. And then finally, we can invest in the gospel personally. Personally. By sharing the good news with others. By being a gospel witness. No one gets to heaven except by that news of Jesus Christ. By believing that Christ, the Son, came to bear our sins upon the cross and died for us. Taking that news. Now, there, there are many opportunities for us to do that just on a personal level. But I'm hopeful coming up here in the next few months that there's going to be some opportunities for our church to be able to uh, attend some local festivals and local activities where what I would like to do is have get us set up with a table and be able to hand out gospel tracts and speak with people. And again, not everybody is, is necessarily given to that type of thing or, or even able to because of schedules or health or whatever, but that's just one opportunity. Join us at a table. Personally invest in the gospel because, you know what, there's no better investment you can make. Philippians found that out. They discovered that by investing in Paul, they were investing in the spread of the gospel. And there's nothing better. It's the best investment you can make.